Well, good morning, New Hope Community Church. Sitting in my, uh, my office this past week, contemplating and thinking, praying about the topic of grace, I heard my voice say, Alexa, play Amazing Grace. There's probably a few thousand versions of Amazing Grace that Alexa could have gone to, but this time she played Alan Jackson's version, which is absolutely beautiful in its simplicity. We just showed a video for the live stream, but we'll, we'll, we'll have to take it down for copyright reasons once we post. So if you're not watching live, I, I encourage you to go have a look at it, specifically the video. I thought it was especially appropriate for us to watch it this morning because Jackson was singing to an empty room. I had a chance to, to see him in concert about 15 years ago, and what struck me about it was was how much presence this guy had on the stage. Uh, I've seen a lot of concerts in my day, many of them featuring rather high-energy bands uh, playing and moving around on the stage. Um, but what was incredible about the Alan Jackson concert is, is that this guy didn't move. He just stood there in the middle of the stage with his guitar and his hat and just projected this deep voice and captivated the audience. The song, Amazing Grace, is also known for its powerful simplicity. As you probably know, it was written by John Newton, who was the pastor of William Wilberforce. Wilberforce and Newton were instrumental in Britain's abolition of the slave trade in the early 19th century. Newton himself was, a, was an interesting character his mother died when he was very young, and he was moved around a lot by his father. He eventually joined the Navy, where he developed a reputation for being a little disrespectful. On at least one occasion, he was arrested as a deserter and publicly flogged for not returning from shore leave on time. After being demoted, he began work then in the African slave trade. He even became the master of a slave ship at one point, and through a series of events, including his own imprisonment, a near-death experience at sea, and a stroke, he met Christ. And then he left the slave trade to pursue ministry. In time, he, he served as Wilberforce's pastor and became an advocate for the abolition of slavery. And in, and in 1788, he, he wrote a pamphlet on the slave trade where he described his own role. He said, I have a confession which comes too late. It will always be a subject of humiliating reflection to me that I was once an active instrument in a business at which my heart now shudders. Written by Newton, Amazing Grace went on to become arguably the most influential Christian hymn of all time. 200 years later, the song still has a, a powerful effect on those who hear it. For Newton, he looked at his past and he came face to face with his brokenness and he wrote, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. A wretch, a contemptible, despised person. 
according to the dictionary. That's what Newton saw when he looked into the reflection of his past. How could someone who had taken part in that level of evil ever find redemption? The song would, would actually become incredibly influential during the second great, great awakening in America in the early 19th century. And coincidentally, it would be especially meaningful to, to African-American gospel traditions. This is mere speculation on my part. But, but I envision John Newton, before his maker, feeling broken, feeling shame, but then God showing him everything that he had done with the song Amazing Grace. The ocean of people who had come forward to give their lives to Christ while listening to its music and singing Newton's words, in Christ, redemption is always available to us. In Christ, God's love is available to us. This morning, we're talking about just that. We're talking about grace. Grace is one of the most fundamental of fundamentals. The thing that is so amazing about grace is that it can be proclaimed to everyone. No matter how broken or dark your past was, grace says that there is nothing, nothing, nothing that God can't redeem. If you've ever felt like a screw-up, grace says, I have a purpose for you. If you've ever felt like a nobody, grace says that you are a son or daughter of the living God. If you've ever felt like, like maybe there is something back there back there in my past that nobody would forgive. If they only knew about that thing, that darkness back there, no one would really forgive me. No one would really love me. Oh, if they, if they only knew about, about that. Oh, I'd be in real trouble if they knew about that. Grace. Grace says not only has it already been seen by God, that thing, who knows the consequences of that thing far more intimately than, than even you or I realize, and then still says that you are yet even now loved far more intimately than you could possibly imagine. God says, yeah, yeah, I saw it. I know about it. And the truth is, I know about the consequences of it far more than you do. But I went to the cross because I love you far too much to let that darkness back there define you. I want your, your, your definition, I want your identity to be rooted in me, to be rooted in Christ. Grace gives us a new identity in Christ. Grace is the, is the heart of the gospel because it's the heart of the good news. Grace declares that there is nothing that you can do to earn God's love. You have it. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians was probably a letter written towards the end of the Apostle Paul's life. We're not quite sure. Ephesus was probably, Ephesians was probably a circular letter that went around um, uh, the, 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 the kind of the Mediterranean world uh, to various churches, and the kind of was uh, the home base of that was probably the, the church in Ephesus. Paul says in chapter 2, the beginning of verse, uh, verse 1, starting in chapter 2, Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit 
that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Kind of like a personification of evil, uh, Satan to be sure. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love for which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ, with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And here it is. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. Not a result of works, no one has any call to boast about this, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which, which God prepared beforehand so that we might walk in them. Did you notice how that section there was bookended with walking language? Verse 1 tells us that that once we were dead in transgressions and sins, once we walked in darkness. And then in verse 10, we're told that in Christ we find new creation for the purposes of fulfilling the good works that God had prepared for us. See, now we walk in the light of Christ. Well, what changed? Once we're told that sin defined us. We're dead in our trespasses. In, in another one of Paul's letters, he says that the wages of sin is death. And, and we might want to push back at that, right? We, want to, we might want to push back and we might want to say, well, well, maybe God just wants too much. Maybe God set the bar just a little too high. He can't ex possibly expect us to live perfect holy lives, can he? That's just unrealistic. But, but here's the thing, church. God just doesn't want holiness from us, like, like he's some overly strict schoolmaster who, who just wants us to keep our heads down and stop being naughty. He wants holiness for us because he wants the absolute best for those he loves. Sin, sin was our own choice. We rebelled against God and His law. We rebelled against God's best and instead made ourselves the center of the plot. We lived into selfishness and that selfish, selfishness those, uh, led to poor selfish choices that hurt other people, other people that God loves, and hurt ourselves, somebody that God loves. When we live into selfishness, we fall for the folly of envy, we fall for the folly of greed and hate and jealousy and cruelty. Don't you see, church, immorality isn't wrong because God doesn't want you to have a good time. Immorality hurts you. Sin hurts you. It destroys you. It corrupts you. It robs you of the abundant life that God created you to have. And what's worse, it prevents you from truly doing the work that God created you to do. And because God is a holy God, 
That means that he cannot allow one dot or blemish to compromise his holiness, his holy character. Not because he's a killjoy, but because you wouldn't want him to. How much compromise would you like God to make? How much sin would you like for God to sweep under the rug and just ignore? You see, the thing is, he can't allow any of it to be swept under the rug. He, he can't do it because God is holy, and he can't not be holy. The truth is that actions have consequences. And eventually, is it... Uh, I like the, the, the quote in the, in the Doctor Strange movie. Eventually, the bill comes due. But God. I love that phrase. I love that, that, that that's there in the beginning of, of verse 8. But God. But God. He, God looked at the ugliness of this world. We look at the ugliness of this world. We see the, the systemic injustice. We see the problems of this world, the pains. And we, we read the news and we say, I can't believe we're falling for that thing again. I can't believe humanity has fallen for that again. That the world is still that ugly. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in trespasses. Made us alive together in Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That's not of your own doing. This isn't because of anything you did. It's a gift. Grace is a gift from God. Not a result of works. Not because you're so great. So that no one may boast. You see, he has a job for you to do. He has a purpose for you, but it is only by his power, by his grace, that you will accomplish it. So it's not by your own merit that you've been saved. It is by his grace, his gift, given in love because of his holy character. You see, church, holiness demanded that God not compromise any sin, but God's love, God being rich in mercy and great in love, love demanded that sin be atoned for. Actions have consequences. The bill comes due. And God saw that the world's rebellion would require an act of sacrificial love for that atonement to take place. So God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, came down into the world he loved so much and said, actions have consequences, so he put on flesh, and he lived a sinless life, and he went to the cross to die a sinner's death, in order that we might be washed of our sins, and given, as a gift, given abundant life. Not because we deserved it, not because we earned it, and certainly not because we're entitled to it, but because of the reckless and gracious love that he has for us. That may not be an easy thing to hear. There, there may be some who hear that message and, and struggle with the idea that salvation was given to you through no effort of your own. You may have lived your whole life kind of with a, with a guiding principle that you don't take handouts. You earn your keep. Our own society, it's, it's very individualistic in nature, 
In our flesh, we might want to proclaim the false gospel that there is no pit so deep that you can't get yourself out of it. I heard one pastor this week talk about how many think that grace is like the oars that God gives us so that you can paddle upstream towards him. And he said, that's not amazing grace, that, that's amazing you. No, Paul says, this is not of your own doing. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. It is imperative that we see that salvation is not because of the good things you did. It is because of the good creator, the good, good father that God is. So there is no doubt that there is humility to this. Coming to the place where you admit to yourself and to God that you are, in, that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. That's a bracing thing. Especially when you stare into your past like, like John Newton did. And you see nothing but just darkness and ugliness. You see the moral failings. You see the professional failings. You see the marital failings. And it all just seems to kind of swell up. And we want to say that, oh, you know, no, no, I think I can get myself out of this mess. Humility admits that you don't have the ability or even the inclination to fully restore your life on your own because it never was your life in the first place. You have nowhere else to go then but your knees, admitting that you too, even you, you need a Savior. But God, rich in mercy and great in love, even when you were dead and said, made you alive with Christ by his grace. He, he, he made you alive. He, he remade you. He is currently remaking you, crafting you into his new creation, sanctifying you by the power of the Holy Spirit into what will be fully recognized in glory one day. Now, the second reason why this might be hard to hear, why grace might be a hard thing to hear, is because you might not feel like you need a Savior very much. It's one thing for a person who has seen the true darkness in their lives to come to a place where they've reached that humility, but, but what if you haven't? What if you stare down the recesses of your life and say, well, it doesn't look that bad, does it? It's true that by grace you have been saved, but I also think it's true that to say that it is by grace you realize your need for a Savior. But I realize that's a tough pill to swallow for some. I can say that that from my own personal experience. I met the Lord as a 13-year-old kid, and I'll be honest, I hadn't lived a life of reckless sin. I had a happy childhood, and by all accounts, I was a good kid. I wasn't the best student in the world, but I got by, and, and my mom didn't have, you know, too many complaints. What compelled me about Christ at the time, though, was that abundant life. I saw what those in Christ had, and I desired that kind of peace. I remember just jumping up on Sunday morning, wanting to go to church because I could feel that God was doing something in my life. He, he was stirring something in me. The church that we were going to at the time was called Grace Fellowship. It was literally an organization founded on the principle of God's grace. So these people, these preachers and the worship team and, the, and even the people sitting around us in the, in the seats, they were filled with God's grace. 
Grace compelled them to create an environment of hospitality so that people like me could see and feel the unconditional love of God. I mean, how foolish would it be for us to say, I think I'll wait for there to be some truly awful sin in my life before I repent. Remember, repentance means to change direction. No matter how great my life was at 13, grace, grace the principal and grace the church, showed me that the only direction worth taking was the direction of the kingdom. The only direction worth taking was that of Christ. And then, when the truly dark sins inevitably entered my life, they only stressed my need for a Savior and the importance for me to seek first the kingdom of God. The third reason why grace might be hard to hear is because when we do the business with the truth that our acceptance of God's grace was not by our own effort, but because of God's love, it's natural for us to, we're naturally compelled to ask, well, why me? And perhaps more pointedly, why not them? I may have accepted the gift of Christ's love, but what, what about my friends? What, what about them? What about my family who, who don't seem to understand God the way that I do? Doesn't, doesn't God love them too? That also was something that I struggled with quite a bit as a young Christian. And to be honest, it, it still has me unsettled. But, but here's the thing. Here's the peace that I discovered over time in regards to that. I think that's exactly where God wants me. Second Peter says that God doesn't wish for any to perish and desires that all should reach that repentance, that all should be turning in the direction of God. I think that you are, if you are concerned about the lost, then that is itself a consequence of God's grace working in your life. If you find yourself with this kind of unsettled feeling in the pit of your stomach regarding the eternal destiny of the people you love most in the world, then I think that you are experiencing a glimpse of what Jesus felt when he went to the cross. This is why creating churches, uh, churches that are only for churched people, is, is so toxic and dangerous. If we've lost the heart for proclaiming the grace of God to everyone, to flinging open our doors and proclaiming the gospel. We've lost the plot of grace. Remember what we, we read a few weeks ago in our, in our series on the Holy Spirit. Uh, this is back in a, a, a chapter 1 of Ephesians. Paul just told us that God's plan was, was to unite all things in Christ, not, not just some things, all things in Christ, things in heaven and on earth. And then in, in beginning in verse 11, Paul says, In Christ we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. See, it's not my business to decide what God does with them then. When the day of judgment comes and Christ sets up his eternal rule and reign on earth as it is in heaven, I thank God that it will not be Joe Miller on the throne separating the sheep from the goats. 
I trust that on that day, the truly worthy one, the one worthy of the throne, will be on the throne judging with justice and love that is entirely trustworthy. In the meantime, we have a job to do. Our job is to proclaim the gospel. Our job is to proclaim, to announce God's gracious love. Oh, you're not a pastor? Your job is still to proclaim the gospel. Proclaim it by reflecting the grace shown to you by God, reflecting that grace back into the world. Proclaim it with the love that you show others. Proclaim it with how you live your life. Proclaim it with your integrity. Proclaim it with how you talk about Jesus with others. Proclaim it by using words that builds others up and affirms them. Proclaim it through joy. Proclaim it through kindness and generosity. Proclaim it with your job performance. Proclaim it with your family. Identify yourself with the gospel of God's grace above all other options. And yes, please, church, proclaim it by inviting others into this fellowship of New Hope Community Church. Our job is to go and make disciples, proclaiming God's grace to every human being and inviting everybody to God's table. Everybody's uh, invited. All are welcome. God says, you can be assured of my love. Now get to the work proclaiming that in thought, word, and deed. Paul says that, that we are the workmanship of God. The word workmanship is the, is the Greek word poema. It's where we get the word poem. So, so you are God's poem. He is telling his epic through your life. It is by grace that that poem will find resolution. It's by grace that that story will find redemption. It's by grace that God's promises will be fulfilled. Mike Gorman says, the question is not whether deeds matter, but rather how. Deeds aren't the cause of salvation, but they are the purpose. They are the proper expression of salvation. And then now Paul adds this, he adds this important phrase in Ephesians that we're going to talk about more next week. He says, by grace you have been saved through faith. Faith is that walking. When we do the things we're called to do by grace, because of God's love, through no earning of our own, our faith is the evidence that we have received that, that we have heard that. We don't earn God's love by believing the right things. Instead, we believe by the grace of God, and then we respond. We respond in faith. In closing, there's a, um, there's a story that Luke tells that I think illustrates that incredibly well. We'll close with this. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with them, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at a table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind Jesus at his, at his feet, weeping, she began to wet her feet, uh, wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. 
Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would, have, he would know who and what sort of a woman that is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. Jesus said, you know, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they couldn't pay, he canceled the death of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, well, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in this room, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is, is this who even forgives sins? But he just said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The woman's actions were a result of the grace of God. The woman's actions were a result of her faith that she was responding to as a result of God's grace that first showed up to her. She didn't do all those things to try to butter Jesus up. She did them because she saw a glimpse of the grace offered to her through the presence of the master. And then she responded accordingly. As such, her faith saved her. She responded in worship. She responded with love. I just, I pray for that sort of faith. For myself, I pray for it for my friends. I pray for it for our church. I pray that, that we would have that kind of reckless, abandoned worship. Identify it. Show us our identity. That we would have um, an understanding of the immeasurable under, uh, riches of God's grace. This God who is rich in mercy and great in love, that we would see that, we would feel that, we would understand that, and we would hear this grace, this gospel truth, that there is nothing so dark back there that he can't redeem it. That we would see that and then respond. Not, not say what, do what uh, Diedrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace, where we just, we hear that, and then we just, well, sit back, and we say, well, I guess God took care of my sin. No, we respond in faith. We walk in faith. And therefore, we are saved by grace through faith. Next week, I'm, I'm looking forward to my friend Jay Davies. He's going to be with us, and he's going to unpack this um, this, this, this topic of, of faith in Christ. Looking forward to that. For now, let me pray. Father, I thank you so much for your grace, for your love that you've shown us.
I thank you that in you, in the love of your Son, in Christ, we can put down shame. We can put down our past. We can put down this idea that we are defined by ugliness back then and back there. And instead now pick up the identity of that we are rooted in Christ, that we are a son or a daughter of the living God. And then watch how he molds us in to life, abundant life as he makes us alive in Christ. Father, my prayer right now is that if there's anybody listening to my words right now who, have not, who has not accepted that gift of God's love, that you would just whisper into their ear right now, now's the day. Today's the day. Today is the day that we start our new life together. Today is the day where I, I let you in, God. Today's the day where I want to make um, you make me alive. I want to I put down my own efforts. I want to put down the, the, the thought that I can do this on my own, and I realize that in Christ alone my hope is found. It is only by your grace that I am saved. And Father, for those of us who have received that, I also pray that, that we can respond accordingly. We can respond by being the workmanship, the poema. We can respond by, by getting ourselves, by, by, by following your lead to the end of the poem, to the end of the epic, to the end of this story that, that culminates with the, 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 the intersection of heaven and earth, with you on the throne who is the only one worthy of our praise. Father, I ask that you fill this New Hope Community Church with your grace, with your Holy Spirit, as we do the work of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to a world that is desperate for your love. Father, we have the greatest news that was ever proclaimed. Help us find our identity in that. Help us be rooted in that. And help us to know of your unconditional, undying, reckless love. It's in the most holy name of Jesus Christ that I pray all these things. It's in his name. Amen.